Chapter 1 of One Thing Needful. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. One Thing Needful by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 1 O oh, marked from birth and nurtured for the skies. The gray old walls of Lashmark Castle rise in a massive pile above a broad reach of the Middleshire Avon, which here makes a bold and sweeping curve, and dallies with its rushy banks, as if some spirit of these Lashmar woods were the Cleopatra to that watery Antony. The stream has such a languorous flow just at this point. The river here spreads itself into such a placid expanse that one would hardly credit the current with force enough to turn a watermill or drift a barge. It has an Arcadian air, a river made for Chloe and Phyllis, and Strephon and his flock, and not for the vulgar uses of daily life. Yet that very river waxes utilitarian enough, and carries all foul things which a seething populace cares to cast into its waters. It puts on the dark livery of smoke and dirt, only a few miles to the east of those Lashmar woods yonder, where the great manufacturing town of Brum obscures the heavens with the smoke of numberless chimneys, and taints the atmosphere with the mixed odors of the people. But here there is no hint of that great industrial center. No one, basking on the green slope above this glassy stream, between a foreground of bulrushes and a background of immemorial oaks, would suspect the existence of such a place as Brum within ten miles. Yet, although its smoke made no stain upon the blue sky above yonder grey towers, Brum had an influence on the inhabitants of Lashmar Castle, and that by no means a pleasant influence. As witnessed by her ladyship's temper upon this particular morning, as she sat at breakfast in the oak parlour, with her stepson, Lord Lashmar, and the Eton boy, her son. Her ladyship was the dowager baroness Lashmar, and a woman of mark. She was one of the daughters of the illustrious marchioness of Pitland, famous alike for wealth, talent, and force of character. Old Lady Pitland had given laws and fashions to society for nearly forty years, before she was translated to that better world in which, perhaps, there are neither coal-mines nor leaders of fashion and she had transmitted much of her managing power and something of her talent and charm to her daughters, the eldest of whom, as Duchess of Malplaquet, was said to be quite the cleverest matron in England, having managed to marry all her daughters to rich men, and to have dressed and fed them in their spinsterhood, and maintained appearances in town and country on something under five thousand a year. Lady Lashmar's powers as an economist had not been so severely taxed, for the Lashmars were rich in stocks and shares, as well as in that luxury of the well-born, broad acres, and they could smile serenely at the decay of rents. Lady Lashmar had always had as much money as she wanted, and some of her tastes were costly, but there was not an ounce of butter or a teacup of milk wasted at Lashmar Castle. There was not a dirty corner or an unauthorized follower in the great rambling old house in Grosvenor Square, which had belonged to the Lashmars from the time of the Pitts and the Foxes, when that aristocratic and exclusive square first came into being. 
Lady Lashmar had the eye of a hawk, and a mind constructed on the principle of the elephant's trunk, which can uproot an oak or pick up a pin. Lady Lashmar's mind could grapple with public questions, and it could stoop to the details of the store-closet and the larder. Yet it must not be supposed that Lady Lashmar's bodily presence was ever beheld in kitchen or storeroom. Her mind did all the work. She had a housekeeper who trembled at her frown, and who obeyed her slavishly. And through this faithful servant she was able to rule every corner of her house, to measure every meal eaten by her household, to be assured that the footmen did not consume more than their due allowance of table-beer, and that the maids did not burn their candles in the small hours reading novels or making bonnets. Lady Lashmar had been ten years a widow, had enjoyed just a decade of undisputed dominion. She was eight-and-thirty, handsome, straight as a dart, with not a wrinkle or a gray hair. Mrs. Monsoon, the princess's own particular dressmaker, had been heard to say, in the confidence of friendly intercourse, that Lady Lashmar was the finest figure she had on her books, and the greatest screw. "'I don't believe I have made twenty pounds out of that woman in all the years I have worked for her,' said Mrs. Monsoon. "'But she shows off my gowns to perfection, and she brings me new customers.' An age in which scandals about the aristocracy are the current coin of conversation had not furnished one hint of evil about Lady Lashmar. It was of her that Lord Blandville, the cabinet minister, said, "'My friend Lashmar's wife has all the virtues. She is handsome, well-informed, accomplished, dignified, chaste as Diana, and the most disagreeable woman of my acquaintance.' Lady Lashmar was not a person who got into violent passions when she was angry. It was said that old Lady Pitland had been wont to swear like a trooper at anybody who crossed her imperious will. Lady Lashmar's anger took a more dignified and a more intense form. This morning the finely cut face was almost livid with passion as her ladyship handed the local paper, the Brougham Independent, to her stepson. They were sitting at a cosy round table in one of the prettiest rooms in the castle. It was a small low room in which the old oak panelling had been painted white. The ceiling was decorated with cupids and garlands. The high, narrow mantel-shelves were lit up by bright little bits of old oriental china. The curtains and chair-covers were of the delicatest chintz. And in every spot where flowers could be placed, were bowls and shallow vases of the famous Lashmar roses, red and yellow, now in the plenitude of their summer beauty. So long as the roses lasted, Lady Lashmar would have no other flowers to decorate her rooms. It was in vain that the head gardener put forward his rarities from the stoves. "'I will have no exotics while I can have roses,' said Lady Lashmar. She sat with her face to the window as one who need not fear the light. No, there was not one line that told of advancing years upon the hard, handsome face. Those finer emotions which plough the human countenance, the cark and fret of sensitive natures, had never affected Lady Lashmar. She had almost always had her own way, and she had almost always been happy. When it pleased heaven to take her husband after six years of married life, she bowed to the rod. 
he was twenty years her senior and a chronic invalid. It was better that he should be called away at fifty years of age than that he should drag out a life of suffering to the scriptural threescore and ten. Lady Lashmore thought that Providence would have done well to take her husband's afflicted son and to leave her own boy, a fine, healthy youngster, to fill the place which the deformed stepson could never hold with proper dignity. Yes, deformed. It is one of those words which are hardest to say. The old servants who had known Lord Lashmore from his cradle said that his back was a little weak. But his stepmother was not a person to sophisticate, or to use soft words. She knew that his spine had been curved in his infancy, a weakly child, born of an over-educated, hyper-intellectual mother, and a father who had lived not wisely but too well. She knew that in the years to come that bent back would get gradually worse, that narrow chest would invite the attack of Thysis. She told herself that Hubert, Lord Lashmar, would never make old bones, but she feared that he might live long enough to marry and leave some sickly son who should blight the prospects of her boy Victorian, the very embodiment of physical power and fresh, unblemished youth. She had not been unkind to her stepson. She was far too clever a woman to make that irreparable mistake. She resolved in the very beginning of things to live pleasantly with her husband's son. It would be so much better for them both, especially for her. Lashmar was fourteen when his father died, and Victorian was five, a difference of nine years. And Lashmar was old for his years. He had never been at any public school. He had not ventured to face the light-hearted republic of a university. What should he, the pariah, the stricken one, do there, among the athletic and robust? He had been brought up in cotton-wool, as it were. He had a middle-aged tutor, who had been with him from his tenth year, and who remained with him as librarian and secretary, and he had an old servant. He had travelled a good deal with the tutor and the servant. He had read more than most young men of five-and-twenty. He was a good classical scholar, and had some knowledge of science. In a word, he was a sickly lad, who had been brought up and nourished upon books. But he had fine instincts and a strong humanitarian feeling. The villagers about Lashmar adored him. He drank tea with the old women, read to them when they were ill, wrote letters for young and old, talked politics or metaphysics with the deep thinkers, and carried the light of a noble intellect into every house he entered. Lady Lashmar was intense in politics, and all her ideas upon legislation were of the good old Tory flavor. She hated radicals, and her greatest affliction in life was that Lashmar Castle should lie, as it were, at the very bosom of revolution. Brum was radical to the backbone, and Brum was only ten miles off. Brum was a center of free-thinking and nihilism, and Brum was at her door. If Aladdin's African magician had been at hand to whisk off her castle to the furthest north, or the remotest west of England, her ladyship would have paid him handsomely for the operation. But Lashmar Castle was planted deep in that detested soil. And as her ladyship despised the dower-house, which was hers by right, and loved this baronial mansion and its much statelier surroundings, 
she was fain to endure the vicinity of Brum and its forty thousand operatives. "'It is an outrage against the decencies of life,' she exclaimed. "'What's the matter, mother?' asked Lashmar, looking up at her with his deep sunken eyes, thoughtful eyes of darkest hazel. "'Is it anything about Boldwood?' "'Of course it is about Boldwood. That low creature has been holding forth at another meeting. They seem to be perpetually having meetings at Brum.' "'They have very few other pleasures,' murmured Lashmar. "'They have theatres and circuses and horrid low music-rooms,' said her ladyship. Surely those are enough for them." "'Enough for the frivolous majority. But you see, there is a superior minority who have learnt to think and want to say their little say upon great public questions. "'Those thinkers and spouters are the pest of society!' exclaimed Lady Lashmar, throwing her paper aside and going on with her breakfast, with an air of finding no savour in either truffle chicken or the Arabian berry. Over-education is the greatest evil of the age. Thank heaven the people themselves are beginning to feel the burden of it. After clamoring for free schools and higher teaching, they are beginning to groan under the tyranny of compulsory education. "'Perhaps that is because when they cry for bread we give them a stone,' answered Lashmar in his gentle, meditative way. "'We cram ologies down the throats of starving children. We feed babes and sucklings with grammar and logic, and then wonder that they are not grateful." "'That class of people never are grateful,' said Lady Lashmar, calmly ignoring her stepson's drift. "'But, fortunately, there are not many such wretches as Boldwood, or we should have this castle sacked and find ourselves turned out upon the high road. Boldwood is worse than Robespierre. Just read his tirade upon the unequal division of property his revolutionary language about great landowners, and his savage insolence about the Duke of Northernland. Boldwood always goes too far, yet there are generally some flashes of sense amidst the cloud of rhetoric. I read that speech of his before you came down to breakfast. He pleads the cause of the yeoman rather cleverly. When one considers that, as an operative, he cannot have very keen sympathies with the agricultural class. His idea of dividing some of our great farms into small holdings, and selling them to the peasantry, to be paid for by installments, upon the same system as that on which needy people buy pianos, is not at all bad. And a pleasant place England would be for decent people to live in if it were chopped up in little bits to please such men as Mr. Boldwood. But really, Lashmar, I believe you're at heart a radical," said her ladyship. No, I am a progressive conservative, and I believe the truest conservatism consists in doing the utmost we can for the people. We can only teach them to respect the privileges of property by letting them taste the sweetness of possession. There is no stauncher conservative than your working-man who has saved a hundred pounds." "'You always talk like a book, Lashmar,' sneered her ladyship. I should like to hear you speak in reply to this man Boldwood at a great public meeting." In her heart of hearts she was thinking how sorry a figure this hunchbacked stepson of hers would make upon a public platform, how poorly his low, grave tones would sound after Boldwood's bass bellowing, 
a voice which thundered and reverberated through a vast building, as if it were the roar of Bashan's mightiest bull. "'Would you really like to hear me speak?' asked Lashmar, smiling faintly. "'Was there ever a young man who has read and thought deeply, who does not long to give speech to his thoughts? It is to satisfy this desire that mechanics' institutes are built. It is for this that an anthenaeum is a pleasant thing in a town.' "'I should like this blatant beast to be answered,' replied her ladyship, somewhat evasively. "'Then I will do my best to answer him next Wednesday week,' said Lashmar. "'There is to be a conservative meeting at the town hall on that night. Colonel Spillington, the new conservative candidate, is going to address the electors. It is expected that Boldwood will be in full force, and that there will be a row. Spillington has asked me to support him, and, yes, I really should like to answer Boldwood. Mine would be a very poor speech, of course a very tame reply to Boldwood, who is a born orator. But I shall have education on my side." "'And prestige,' added Victorian, who had been too busy with his breakfast to speak before. "'I only wish I were old enough to tackle Boldwood. I'd make his hair curl.' "'What hideous expressions these boys pick up at Eton!' said her ladyship with a shiver. Then, with a fond approving look at the handsome lad, she said proudly, "'I hope you will be in Parliament before you are ten years older, Victorian, and that you will be a distinguished politician.' "'Oh, I don't mind going into the house in ten years' time,' answered the boy easily. "'But I should like to have my fling on the continent for a few years first, as Henry St. John had, don't you know, before he sat for the family borough. Nothing enlarges a fellow's views like diplomacy. I shall get on to one of the legations directly I leave college, Paris if possible, and see as much as I can of life before I pin myself down to politics. Paris is an admirable place for a young man who wants to waste his time pleasantly," said Lashmar, smiling at the embryo diplomatist. "'Did you waste your time there?' asked the boy. "'No, Vic. I am not the kind of person to succeed in Parisian society. My gifts are in another line." "'Poor old Lashmar! You are out and away the cleverest chap I know. When I think of how much you've read, and how much better you can construe a Greek play than our Toffs and the Sixths, I take off my hat to you. Do speak next Wednesday week, Lash, and give that radical chap a good shaking. We'll hear what Spillington says about it," answered Lashmar quietly. If he wants me, I'll speak. He is to stay here the night before the meeting. You don't mind, do you, mother?" Lord Lashmar always deferred to his stepmother in all household matters, invitations, and engagements. There were only four rooms in Lashmar Castle in which he reigned supreme. The library was one, and his own sitting-room, bedroom, and dressing-room were the others. Outside these rooms he exercised no authority. The Lashmar Library was the finest in Middleshire, one of the finest in England. The apartment which accommodated that noble collection of books was worthy of the treasures it contained. It was long and lofty, with a fireplace at each end, the oak chimney-pieces carved by Grinling gibbons, the ceiling enriched with oak carving, 
the bookcases in harmony with the chimney-pieces and ceiling. Lord Lashmar's writing-table and reading-desk, his capacious armchair and dainty little tea-table, only made an island of furniture in the vast expanse of oak flooring, relieved here and there by an oasis of old Indian carpet. The only bright colouring in the room was furnished by the books. The Lashmars had been connoisseurs in bookbinding for the last hundred years. They had spent thousands upon that elegant art. They had wasted thousands, said the unappreciative outer world, persons slow to understand that the case of a shabby-looking duodecimo Elsevier ought to cost four or five pounds. Lashmar's sitting-room opened out of the library, and would have seemed a large room in a smaller house. It was lined from floor to ceiling with bookshelves, containing the young peer's own particular library those books which had been the one luxury of his life. New books or new editions for the most part, books in several languages, books that had been their owner's consolation in many a day of bodily weakness and weariness, for Lashmar's life had been made up of brief intervals of health between long periods of illness. Those halcyon days of well-being were very sweet to him. At such times he spent almost all his life out of doors, and reveled in nature's loveliness as only a highly trained mind can revel, tasting the most infinite details in the feast of beauty, the lights and shadows on the petals of a primrose, the sheen on a beetle's wing, enjoying every variety of atmosphere and colouring, every form of lowliest life, with that sensitive instinct for nature which breathes in every line of Wordsworth's descriptive verse. He had travelled much and knew nature in her most glorious aspects, but he had no need to go far afield for beauty. The woodlands around Lashmar, the low hills and pastoral valleys, the winding Avon and the English hedgerows furnished a banquet which always satisfied the longings of his soul. "'If I had but any one to whom I could tell all my foolish fancies, I should be ever so much happier,' he said to himself, sometimes regretfully but there is no one. Victorian would only laugh at me as a queer old chap, and my lady would lift her eyebrows and inwardly wonder if there was a strain of madness in the Lashmar blood. End of chapter 1